which very much makes me sort of a generalist. I know a little bit about several different topics. I'm not a specialist by any stretch of the imagination, but that has sort of given me a broad overview of a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that we talk about and think about and ask questions about as Christians. And so that's sort of given me a passion to be able to pass that on to, to you all. I have three beautiful kids. They are about an hour and a half away from bedtime. So that's where we stand right now. But uh, yeah, I love them to death. They are so much work and they're a lot of fun. But uh, yeah. And for the last 11 years, I've worked for a company called Automatic. Our focus is on adult education and training in the corporate world, which has nothing to do with my education. And I sort of backed into it, fell into it. It dropped into my lap, however you want to say that. But that side of things has given me a lot of experience in understanding how adult learning works, understanding how to design training and curriculum, so on and so forth. And so it's been a very interesting way that God has sort of brought my vocation and my passion together to allow me to do things like this. So a little bit about me. I want to just briefly touch on, as part of that, kind of what I see as the purpose not only of this, but of my purpose. I, I very much have felt called by God to sort of be, I don't know how I would put it, a structural earthquake engineer for faith. Uh, anyone know what these folks are doing in this image here? It's for me, it's here. For you, it's here. They're, yeah, they're laying foundation, right? And truly, I have, I have seen, I have witnessed, and I have heard so many stories of, of Christians who walk away from their faith or who question and I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to have doubts. Doubts are good because that means you're thinking. You're engaged with, with what you're believing. But doubts to the point where they can't resolve them, they can't find answers, and they, they walk away. I feel like part of my role in the body is to try and mitigate that because I really do believe there are good answers for these questions, even the hard ones. And so, and if you maybe aren't a believer, I, I hope that through this experience you'll get to hopefully see that we do have a good foundation as Christians for what we believe. There are good answers to these questions. So that's what, that's what we're doing here. That's why I'm here for, for this, generally speaking. We'll do a little housekeeping before we dive in. Just very quickly, I mentioned it a few minutes ago, but if you are a note taker and you do not have a notebook with you, we do have notebooks there and there in the back uh, with pens. So if you would like to take notes, we've tried this a couple different ways. I've taught a few other classes, seminars, and we have tried to provide notes, and about 10% of the feedback that we get is, I need more space for notes, and the other 10% of the feedback is blank note pages at the end. So we just thought, you know what? I'm not going to try and read your mind. You're just going to get to take your own notes. So you take as much or as little as you want. We are recording these, both audio and video podcasts, so if you'd like to go back after and listen or rewatch again to fill in something, feel free to do that as well. Also, if you have questions that come up that don't get answered by whatever, whether it's in a particular session or at all, we are going to try and, I'm going to try and allow a, a significant amount of time on the back half of the last week to do some live Q&A. So if you have a question that you really want answered and it doesn't get addressed, write it down as you're going while you're thinking about it and we will try and have some time to take care of those at the very end. So far so good? Okay, I know we're all adults here. Please spay and neuter your cell phones. If you've got to take a call, a text, whatever, that's fine. Just 
try and keep the Lionel Richie in the middle of everything to a minimum, that's all. Last piece of housekeeping here. I've said this right from the get-go, but, and, and it looks like you all heard me. This is not, not, not this in particular session, but over the course of really the next three weeks, this is going to be a, a hard PG-13. And all that means, and I, I shared this with someone earlier, all that means is if it were my kids, I would not want them to hear about some of the things we're going to talk about from someone other than me as their parent. So if you've already talked about some of these topics like genocide, murder, torture, rape, really bad things that people do to each other, this is, I would say, like teenagers and up, this is perfectly acceptable for them to, to think through, I think even beneficial. But just understand that those are, those are going to be topics we're not going to shy away from because they're part of the, the problem. And the reason for that is if we really want to get to some answers, some good answers on these questions, we have to allow ourselves at least for a time to just experience some momentary discomfort. But I promise you there is a payoff on the other side. It's not, it's not sadistic. <laughs> there are answers. So here's our plan. Here's what we're going to do over the next five weeks. First and foremost, we're going to be committed to staying anchored in scripture. We're going to do everything we can to base everything not primarily on philosophy or theological systems that have been developed, but to look at the text and to see what does the text say and, and to, to stay there to, to make that our, our lifeline. We are also going to try, I hope, to move past lip service because the truth is there are a lot of doctrines as Christians that we say we believe or we, we do believe, but the truth is we haven't really maybe ever examined them very closely, or maybe at all. And so my goal is to help us move past that, to help you move past when you're faced with a hard situation or a difficult question, to move past quoting Romans 8.28 or some other cliche and, and actually being able to, to think biblically and scripturally more broadly about these things. In so doing, my hope is and my goal is that we're going to help you solve some problems, maybe some things in scripture that have been perhaps difficult for you to resolve or just things that have always puzzled you. But that said, wherever possible, if there's multiple ways to look at something, I'm going to give you those. I'm going to give you my opinion. But ultimately, I want you to leave this experience having formed your own conclusions. I want you, as Paul says, to be fully convinced in your own mind about what you believe about these things, because that is how you lay a good foundation, not just trading what one person says for what another person says. That's not, that's not going to help you. So... All that is out of the way now. Let's dive in. Part of the issue that we face when we're talking about the problem of evil is something that uh, theologian D. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, and he, he wrote this. Most of our troubles are due to the fact that we are guilty of a double failure. We fail on the one hand to, to realize the depth of sin, and on the other hand, we fail to realize the greatness and the height and the glory of our salvation. So over the next five weeks, that is going to be a goal, is that by the end of this, you will have a firm grasp on the depth of your own sin and of us as humans, but also a firm grasp on how great and amazing our salvation actually is, because both are true. So in order to accomplish that goal, we're going to look at nine difficult questions. Starting tonight... We're going to do a little bit of background information first, and then with the rest of our time, we are going to look at the question of why do we suffer for Adam's sin? Next week, we are going to 
cover two every week after. So the next week will be why do bad things happen to good people? And we're also going to take a look at what about those who never hear the gospel? The fate of the unevangelized, as it is sometimes called. Week three is going to be all about hell. How in the world is eternal punishment fair? I mean, the worst people will just pull it out of that. Hitler, he only lived for a certain amount of time. He only did so much bad stuff. How could an eternity of punishment possibly be fair, even for the worst people? And we're also going to look at why perhaps God lets children die. So as I said, the first three weeks are heavy, to say the least. Coming out of that, though, week four, we're going to dive into some other topics that are related to all this that sort of flow out of all these things. One is the value of free will and understanding how that factors into this, because it very much does, as well as how our suffering might actually produce some kind of good in the long run, because that is one of the big pieces of the puzzle. And then lastly, on our final week, we're going to answer two more questions. How will heaven mitigate the suffering that we experience here on earth? And then finally, sort of all leading to the big question of why does God allow evil? If you can answer all those other questions, you'll be able to answer this question. And so that's why we're addressing it in the order that we are. Now, why do these questions matter? They matter because there are people out there who look at these questions and they say there are no good answers. I'll give you two examples. Who's heard of Sam Harris? Okay, a couple of you. He is probably currently one of the world's most popular atheists. And he writes this in one of his earlier books. Somewhere in the world, a man has abducted a little girl, and soon he will rape and torture and kill her. And if an atrocity of this kind is not occurring at precisely this moment, it will happen in a few days or hours or days at most. And those same statistics suggest that this girl's parents believe, just like you believe, that an all-powerful and all-loving God is watching over them and their family. Are they right to believe this? Is it good that they believe this? Sam Harris says, no. And the whole reason why he's an atheist is summed up in that, right? It is not a good thing that these people are, he would say stupidly, naively, whatever, holding out hope in an all-loving, all-powerful God while things like this happen. He just can't reconcile that. Now, if you've taken my seminar on the resurrection, you'll recognize Dr. Bart Ehrman, New Testament scholar, who wrote in one of his books, I realized that I could no longer reconcile the claims of faith with the facts of life. In particular, I could no longer explain how there could be a good and all-powerful God actively involved with this world, given the state of things. For many people who inhabit this planet, life is a cesspool of misery and suffering. I came to a point where I simply could not believe that there is a good and kindly disposed ruler in charge of it. I have now lost my faith altogether. I no longer go to church, no longer believe, no longer consider myself a Christian. This is what I'm trying to mitigate, because this is probably the most popular reason why people walk away. They cannot answer these questions because life throws these kinds of situations at them. And it does. It's hard. So we're going to start off with a little bit of background, and we're going to try and get our arms around some topics and define some terms so that we can approach these questions correctly and carefully. So we're going to start very broadly with this idea of what, what is evil exactly. So we, we have a, too big of a group to do the normal rounds and groups and all this stuff. So what I'm going to ask you is just to take a couple minutes with the two or three or maybe four people in your immediate vicinity 
and just take a couple minutes and discuss this question. What I want you to answer, talk about amongst yourselves, just a couple minutes, is, is evil a thing? Is evil a thing? Why or why not? If you, if you say, yes, it is, why? And if you say, no, it isn't, why not? All right. Let's wrap it up, and we'll, we'll get a quick poll here, and we'll, we'll keep on trucking. So, out of curiosity, and this is not to put anyone on the spot, I'm just genuinely curious. How many of you would say, yes, evil is a thing? Show of hands. Okay. How many of you would say, no, evil is not a thing? Okay. I mean, we're all in agreement that evil exists, right? So it seems odd to say it's not a thing because, well, there it is, right? I can show you examples of it. I can talk about it, right? But... As I said, we're going to stay grounded in Scripture. So for your consideration, I would like you to to look at these passages. In Isaiah 44, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. John 1, 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. One more, Romans chapter 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. So the question is, if evil is a thing, God is the creator of evil. There is no exceptional language in these passages. God made everything. If evil is a thing, God made evil. Are we feeling uncomfortable yet? (laughs) So how do we get out of this, right? Because we would want to affirm, well, no, that's not right. God is good. God did not make evil. Consider this. This is is the interactive portion of of tonight. So I'll throw it out there. Just what is coldness? How would you define it? Anyone? I heard the absence of heat. What is darkness? Right. So what is evil? Let me frame it this way. I'll give you an analogy. Can you have teeth without cavities? Hopefully you all do. Can you have cavities without teeth? Not possible. Not possible. What this means is, and some of the early church fathers defined it this way, because this is how if you read Augustine, for example, he wrote about this, this idea that evil is parasitic upon the good. You can certainly have good without evil. You cannot have evil without good. It is parasitic. It is a twisting, a perversion, a corruption of the good. When someone or something fails to live up to goodness, it becomes evil, right? Broadly speaking, theologians and philosophers have put evil into two categories. On the one hand, you have what they would call moral evil. These are things like drunk driving, like murder, like rape, like torture, like mass shootings not that far ago in our very recent history. On the other hand, you have something that they would call natural evil. These are things also not too far in our recent history like hurricanes, floods, mold, cancer, Natural evils, things that are just part and parcel of living in a world that has been broken. Now, the catch is it gets gray because sometimes these categories overlap. For instance, 
Cancer is a natural evil. But you can acquire a natural evil by making moral choices. Right? These are, these are where things start to overlap and converge. But in general, those are the two categories we would be talking about. And all this has led philosophers to think about it and realize that, you know, actually there isn't a problem of evil. It gets worse. There are actually problems of evil. And they've categorized them in the following ways. There are three, broadly speaking, again, there would be the logical, the evidential, and the religious problem of evil. We're not going to take the time to cover all of these in depth. But for the sake of helping you to understand kind of where, where we've been as a as, as people in this discussion over the last hundreds and thousands of years, I'm going to briefly touch on, on logical and religious. So first one, logical. What is the logical problem of evil? David Hume, who is a Scottish atheist philosopher, he summarized it this way. He said, is he, speaking of God, willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's impotent. He's not all-powerful. Is he able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. He's not good. And if he's both able and willing, then why in the world does evil exist? Right? Seems like a fair question. Let's put it in other words. He's simply saying a powerful God could prevent evil. A loving or good God would want to prevent evil. And yet, here's evil. So the fact that evil exists proves that either God is not powerful, not good, or the conclusion he arrived at, not real. Now, Braveheart fans, what's the answer? What does everyone think in their head when they see this? Freedom. Freedom. Right, yeah, you can yell it. It's okay. That's right. This has been the traditional answer for a few hundred years, right? And it's this, just simply this idea is to say, listen, if God chooses to create significantly free creatures, which I think we would all agree we are, he cannot make or determine for them to do only what is right. You can't make someone freely do something. That's not freedom. That's a logical contradiction. It's incoherent. Meaning, if God is going to create people with the capacity to choose moral goods like love and compassion and showing great kindness and love toward one another, with it comes the possibility that they're going to abuse that freedom and that they're going to use it in all the wrong ways. You cannot have one without the other. And it seems as though God has chosen to create free beings. Therefore, God is not responsible for the misuse of the free will that he created them with, with all the right intentions. The logical problem of evil has been dead for hundreds of years. You'll still find it on YouTube comment sections and internet forums because apparently people haven't heard. But in, in serious academic circles, no one, I mean, and I'm talking about atheists who've written about this, they're just like, yeah, it's, it's gone. No one, no one cares about the logical problem. It's been defeated. So what about the religious problem? I'll simply say this, because the religious problem has to do with the emotional aspect of the problem of evil. This is hard stuff. It just is. But for some reason, and I think there are reasons, it seems to get laid at the feet of Christians as if it's our responsibility to answer this problem. But the truth is, the problem of evil is not a uniquely Christian problem. The truth is, whether you believe in a God, many gods, or no God, whatever your worldview is, you need an answer for why the world is the way it is. 
you need an answer for why is all the suffering and evil that exists. It might be a materialist answer that says, we're just matter in motion. There is no such thing as evil. It's just yucky stuff that we don't like. Like, you like Coke, I like Pepsi, but I, mean, I can't say murder is wrong. It just happens, right? Or you might be a Hindu who says, the reason that you're suffering is because it's your fault. Something you did in a past life, it's your karma. Or a Buddhist might say, evil's all in your head, it's an illusion. And as soon as you realize that it's not real, all that stuff that's happening to you and in the world, it's not really real, it'll go away. So the question is not necessarily whether only we need an answer. Everyone needs to give an answer. The question is, is it a good answer, right? And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time over the next five weeks is looking at the evidential problem of evil, which basically asks this question. So does the evil, the universe with all the evil in it, does it make sense? Can we make sense of this, or is this just completely incoherent? I think we can make sense of it. And so we're going to start with our very first question. Why do we suffer for Adam's sin? So we're going to, again, start with Scripture wherever possible. We're going to look at the very beginning of the story. In Genesis 2, we know the story. God planted a garden in Eden. And I want to look carefully at the text. It says that God planted in particular, he planted all the plants, all the trees. But in particular, he planted two trees. One was the tree of life, and the other was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, for our purposes here, I don't think it really matters how you interpret Genesis, frankly. I think if we look at the intent of the author... What is the theological point that is being communicated here? It is two things. God, because out of all the trees that God could have named, or you know, he names these two. What, what is being communicated? That God alone is the source of life, and that God alone is the source of objective morality. Only God gets to determine what is truly, really right and wrong. That's not up to us. That's up to God. Because of who he is. So, we see further in the story, God commands, and I want you to notice who? The man. Specifically Adam. And he tells Adam, Don't eat, you can eat of any tree except for the knowledge of good and evil. Again, What's the, what's the theological point being communicated? Do not take for yourself what does not belong to you. That's not up to you to decide for yourself what is good and evil. That belongs to me, right? And then the serpent, which we're going to get to in just a few minutes, deceives not Adam, but Eve. Did God really say that? He starts to get her to question. He, he twists her thinking, he deceives her, and then she adds to what God said. Right? No, we can't eat it. We can't even touch it or we're going to die. And of course, he jumps on that. He says, that's, that's not true. You're not going to die. Here's the thing. God knows something that he hasn't told you. I'm going to give you a little peek behind the curtain here. God knows that if you do this thing, you're going to get information that God doesn't want you to have because God is holding out on you. God does not have your best interest at heart. I do. Just let me take care of you. You're, this is going to help you. This is going to be a good thing for you. And so she then looks at it and she weighs it according to her own standards, not according to what God has said. And she makes the decision. But she gives it to her husband who was with her 
the whole time, and he eats. And it is Adam's sin that breaks everything. So, before we proceed a little bit further, we need to talk about the serpent. Because this is something that gets, I think, misconstrued a lot. And even though, uh, maybe not misconstrued, there I think is more in Scripture than maybe you've, you've looked at. We know more about who this is, maybe, than, than you think, or you would think, at first glance. First of all, we're all in agreement. This is not a talking snake, yes? Okay. This is something else, right? This is a spiritual being. And just for the sake of, I'm going to have a quick grammar spasm here, but for the next minute or two, we're going to refer to the serpent by the Hebrew word. He is called the nakash. And there's a reason for that. I'm not just throwing Hebrew at you for no good reason. In the original language, there's something going on here that we miss. The, the noun form of nakash, because if you know Hebrew, it's just, it's just consonants at this point, and vowels get supplied by context. So when you supply the vowels to make N-H-S, nakash, you end up with a noun that means snake or serpent. So this is a perfectly legitimate translation. I'm not saying that it shouldn't be serpent. It should be. But what's interesting is if you change the vowel pointing to the verb form of this word, you get nihesh, which literally translates to giver of omens. This has to do with divination or the revealing of divine knowledge, which is exactly what happens in the garden. The serpent comes and says, Eve, I got something else for you that God didn't say. Let me give you a peek behind the curtain, right? Furthermore, there's an Aramaic version of this word that's related language, nekoshet, which translates roughly to this idea of bronze or copper, which in the ancient world, when polished, gives a shining or shimmering appearance. Why is that important? Well, how are angels and angelic beings and spiritual beings described in Scripture when they appear to people? They're bright. They're shining, right? I would suggest to you, and this is not me, this is some commentators and some Semitic language experts who have said, yeah, I feel like there is some triple entendre going on here in Genesis, that what is being conveyed by this language here is actually a very, very clever use of wordplay by the author to convey not just snake. And we're going to look at what that is. That's even more than it appears to be. There's way more than meets the eye here. This gives us clues as to who this being is, not just a talking snake. There's something much, much deeper going on here. And we know that because we can look at other passages, like Ezekiel 28, for example. Now, this is specifically addressed to the Prince of Tyre, but very quickly into this passage, Ezekiel starts saying things about the Prince of Tyre that have nothing to do with the Prince of Tyre. Like, for instance, uh, when he goes on to say, uh, you were in Eden, the Garden of God. Well, no, he wasn't. <laughs> we're talking about someone else, but there's a parallelism going on here. It's, the Prince of Tyre is arrogant, and he, is, he has forgotten his place relative to God. And that reminds Ezekiel of someone else who was arrogant and forgot his place relative to God. And so he's going to start comparing the two as if applying one language to the other. And I've highlighted in yellow anything that has to do with location and in the pink or purple, uh, anything to do with a description of what this being actually is. So let's look at it. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. We name all the stones crafted in gold and settings and your engravings. What kind of appearance would that give a being? Shining, shimmering, right? And on that day, you were created, uh, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. 
We'll talk about that in a minute. I placed you in the midst of the holy mountain of God. Interestingly enough, when you study Eden in scripture, it is described not only as a garden, it is also described as a mountain. Mountains are not in the ancient world where deities met with people. You would go up to a mountain, right? And that happens at Sinai in Exodus. The ancients believed that, it, that that's where their deities dwelled as well. Look at the Greeks and Mount Olympus and so on and so forth, right? So you have this language of this holy mountain of God is also a, another way of talking about Eden. He's there in God's presence. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Again, this is too far afield of tonight, but this is a reference to other divine beings in God's presence, his heavenly counsel, other spiritual beings. You were blameless. wasn't created bad. Became that way. And he became that way uh, because of his pride, because of his beauty, because of his splendor. He got too big for his britches. But what happened as a result is God casts him as a profane thing from the mountain, O guardian cherub, and from the midst of the stones of fire. He gets kicked out of God's house, out of God's presence. And then lastly, in Ezekiel, we see that he is... My clicker will work here. Here we go. Cast to the ground. The Hebrew word for ground is eretz. It does mean earth or ground, but it can also and is translated in the Old Testament as sheol. This is also can mean the underworld, the place of the dead. That'll become important in just a minute. Let's look at another passage, Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, to eretz. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, these, these other heavenly council beings, and I will set my throne on high on the mount, God's house of the assembly, above the heights of the clouds. In other words, I'm going to take God's place. I'm going to do God's job because I, I can do it better. But instead, brought down to, here it is, Sheol. There's our parallel with Eretz. Eretz doesn't just mean earth. We're talking about the underworld here to the far reaches of the pit. One more reference, and yes, Obadiah is good for something. (laughs) Verses 2 through 4, this in reference to Edom, but again, this language that doesn't really apply to them per se, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You were in your lofty dwelling, but where do you go? You will be cast down to the ground. There's Eretz again. You were set amongst the stars, language in the Old Testament for divine beings, But I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So from all this, what do we get? We're going to summarize the serpent. What we are looking at here is a divine being, a spiritual being, if you will, and a guardian of God's space. Why do I say that? He was not an angel who was fallen. We'll get to that in a second because of how he's described. Let me just say now, if this is what you have in mind when you think of the devil... You're way, way off. This is Pan from Greek and Roman theology, frankly, with the horns and the the hooves and the the tail and all that nonsense. That is not how an ancient Hebrew or Canaanite or anyone else would have conceived of this being. It would have been more like this. These are Babylonian lamasu, their word for throne room guardians. Cherub in Hebrew, actually comes from a Mesopotamian word, keruv, which is this. And you see these described in the Bible, sometimes as seraphim, sometimes by Isaiah and 
and by Ezekiel and others and even in Revelation of these hybrid creatures that sometimes have the appearance of men or bovine features and wings and tails and there's lion parts and eagle parts and point is they are intimidating. These are not dudes you want to mess with, right? In fact, we see a different one mentioned in Genesis because after Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, God puts a cherub, a karuv, at the entrance to Eden to guard the way with a big giant flaming sword. This is not someone you're going to want to sneak past, right? This is who the serpent is. You say, how do you, how do you say that? He's a serpent. He's not, he's not described with any of these features. Karuv is a Mesopotamian version of this. Seraph is the Egyptian version. Seraph translates to, in Isaiah in two places, flying, fiery serpent. And not literally flying. Snakes didn't used to fly. It's a reference to cobras in the, in the desert region there. When they have these flaps on their heads that open up, they look like wings. So in the ancient mind also, why do they associate snakes with burning? What's it feel like when you get bitten by a snake? Fiery, it burns, right? The point is, is this is a divine being that most closely resembles something along the lines of this snake serpent-like thing. He's a bodyguard for God's throne room. And he decides to attempt a coup. And he recruits Adam and Eve to help him. He says, hey, I can do God's job better. I think I'd be pretty good at it, actually. Let me get some help, though. <laughs> and we're not, I mean, we're not told exactly what his motivations are. We can only speculate. But he succeeds in destroying God's sort of human family element in his, leading his coup against God's spiritual family element. But here's the reversal. Instead of usurping and taking over for the Lord of the living, again, God alone is the source of life. This is part of, the, the, the part of Genesis. The reversal is he gets cast to Eretz, to Sheol, to the underworld. He becomes the Lord of the dead. You are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. And because you have done this thing, you are cursed. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat. Now, I'll just pause here too, because this is something that gets misinterpreted. This is not an allegory about how snakes used to have legs, but now don't. How do we know that? If we just read the rest of the verse, we see... Snakes don't eat dirt, do they? Right? If we're not going to take that part literally, we shouldn't take the other part literally. The, the picture is, you tried to go high, I am going to put you as far under my heel, under my foot, as I can put you. And it is not a promotion to become Lord of the dead. That sounds like, ooh, that's a, a fun... No, that is where the death and the decay and the yuck and the gross, and all the things that do not belong in a holy God's presence, go, you get to be in charge of those things. That's what you deserve, right? This is very much a punishment. Problem is, because we participated, because Adam and Eve participated, now, everyone who dies belongs to the Lord of the dead. We're his. And this is not me drawing an inference. The writer of Hebrews says... That the devil is the one who has the power of death. This is what he got in, the, in his rebellion as a punishment. That's where we stand right now. So, since the mind can only hold what the butt can endure, let's take a quick break. Let's do whatever your phone or your watch says. Let's add nine minutes to it. And... We'll be back here. Get caffeinated up, hit the restroom, whatever you need to do.
and we'll pick back up in nine minutes. So when we last left our heroes, <laughs> and now we have to deal with the fallout of that decision. Now this is where, as I said earlier, if there are multiple ways of looking at something, I'm going to share those with you. I'm going to give you my, my take on it. But ultimately, it's your call. You, you need to, again, be fully convinced in your own mind. So let's look at some of the things that the New Testament describes as a result of all of this that happens. First, in Romans chapter 5, this is one of the biggest passages that deals with this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So the traditional understanding is so Adam, Adam screws up and now sin and death are part of the picture for everybody. We inherit it all. Thanks, Adam. Way to be. James talks about how this process works, that we have desire. Desire gets twisted. It, gets, it becomes action, which is sin. We miss the mark. And then when that fully develops, we die. Yay. <laughs> Happy ending, right? One more. Romans chapter 7, even Paul is talking about, and again, if he wasn't a Christian in this passage, there would be no internal conflict. He wouldn't be upset about the fact that he's not obeying the law of God. He has this intense internal conflict as a believer where this stuff wants to, wants to sin, wants to rebel, wants to pull away from God. But in his mind, he wants to serve the law of God. And he finds himself doing all kinds of things that he can't stand. Thanks, Adam. Right? We would look at these, and a lot of people do, and they look at this and they go, that is not fair. How in the world is that fair, right? And through the course of church history, even, even before, people have tried to reconcile and understand, so exactly what is our connection to Adam? Because it, it seems like we have one, and clearly Scripture would affirm there's some sort of connection there to Adam. How does that work? I'm going to give you three options. You're going to know by the end of this which one is mine, but I'm going to give you three options. We're going to talk about pros and cons to all of them. If any of you have ever read theology, systematic theology, or you've been to Bible college or seminary or whatever, you're probably going to be very intimately familiar with the first two options because they get discussed all the time. The first option takes what is in Romans 5.12 and it understands and interprets that to be meaning sin comes into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death comes through sin. So we inherit Adam's sin, we inherit Adam's death, we get his sin nature, we get all of it. Now everyone who's born after Adam gets all that junk. We're slaves to sin, so on and so forth. It interprets that to mean Adam is our representative. He was, to put it in a certain way, he was on probation for all of humanity in the garden. And when he made the decision to sin and rebel, he represented all of us. And so we go along for the ride because he was human, we're human. As a result of that, we inherit Adam's guilt. All humans are guilty because of Adam's sin, because humanity, humanity corporately rebelled because Adam was our representative. Now, that's not to say that everything is Adam's fault because we sin too. And this view would say, you know, when we sin, our own sins sort of ratify or we throw, we cast our lot in with Adam and we, we say, essentially, if it had been me in the garden... 
I would have done the same. And that's sort of a theological uh, gimme that gets thrown in there at the end of like, but if it had been you, you would have done it too. Very briefly, there are some, I think, problems with this view. First of all, it's not exactly what the text says. And as I said, I want us to look very closely at the text. If you do, you'll see that Adam did not pass on guilt. Adam passed on death. Let's look at it again. Sin came into the world through one man. Yep, Adam sinned. And death through sin, and death spread to all men. It does not say that Adam's sin or his guilt spread to all men. Death spread to all men. And now we all sin. There's another problem, though, and this one is another... I think this might be a more uncomfortable problem with this view. It means that everyone is guilty from conception. If we inherited Adam's guilt, then the problem is not, hear me, the problem is not what we do. The problem is what we are. We are human. That makes us objects of God's wrath from the very first moment we're human. If you're starting to squirm, because you're starting to think about, well, wait a second, there should be maybe exceptions to that, right? You're in the right track. There were other Christians, early church fathers, Augustine was one of them, who saw that tension. Wait, 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 wait. You're telling me that, like, babies are under God's wrath because they're human, right? Augustine saw that tension, and so he proposed an, another view, and this is option two. This is taken from, there are other, a couple other passages. This is the primary one in Hebrews chapter 7 where the writer says, one might even say, or in other translations, one could almost say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now we look at that and we're like, what in the world is he talking about? You have to understand that there's this ancient Near Eastern cultural perspective on this. And this is why if anyone dare read this, the book of Song of Solomon or any other ancient literature that has to do with this topic, you will see all over the place that garden and planting and right there in Genesis, seed imagery is often used as a euphemism in the Bible and in other ancient texts for intercourse. Because there was this idea in the heads of ancients that the whole person was resident within the man. And like a seed, during intercourse, that seed, that person, was planted in the woman where it would grow. Now again, we look at that and we go, that's not scientifically accurate. We know how that all works, right? But the concept of the whole person is resident within the man, this view has sort of been, this verse has been taken and sort of extrapolated to say, okay, so if, if that's the case, if we're going to go there with Levi and Melchizedek and all this, then it would mean that we weren't represented by Adam. We were all, in some way, shape, or form, actually in Adam, right? Because we all come from Adam. So it wasn't that he represented us. It's that we were there. In some way, shape, or form, we were in the garden with him. All of humanity participated in the fall. Now, that might also leave you with some immediate problems, and we're going to talk about that. But one thing I want to mention before we move on from this is the very first four words are so crucial. 
One might even say, one could almost say, notice that the writer of Hebrews does not say that Levi himself was in the loins of Abraham. He never says that. He says, you could almost say that he was. Let me give you a modern example. Let's say someone's a huge fan of the the, the Phoenix Suns, right? And you could say, he's such a big fan of the Phoenix Suns, you could almost say he's the 11th man, right? Are we ever actually saying he is? No. We're saying he's so closely, he's so tied in, right? This is an idiom that we would use to describe a sort of relationship not meant to be taken uh, not figuratively, basically. But I want us to see that in this passage, the language that's used there is figurative language. It is not literal. Now, that would again, like I said, that would lead to the conclusion that so we all pre-existed in Adam and therefore in some way, shape, or form participated in what was going on in the garden. This view would posit that humanity is something like a vine or sourdough bread if you want to use a baking example of that you have this original and everything that comes off of that or grows out of that is organically connected to the original. You don't get something new just because you pull a piece off the sourdough bread. It's the same loaf, right? So if there's something bad in the original, you're only going to, you're never going to improve upon that, right? Passages like John 3, 6 would say that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And since we are born of flesh, So the view goes, we can only pass on what we have, right? We have this organic vine-like connection to Adam. We can only pass on what we have. And because of Adam, what we have is corruption. So that corruption just gets copied and copied and copied and copied, so on and so forth. Even in uh, Ephesians 22, put off your old way of life, which is corrupt corruption. And then another verse that, again, usually gets interpreted to mean uh, sin nature, uh, that because of these things, we are by nature children of wrath. So this idea that we inherit a sin nature because we have an organic connection to Adam. Humanity is one thing, and it always has been and it always will be. There are, of course, some problems with this view as well. One, I'll just throw it out there, preexistence is not biblical. Actually, that's Mormon theology, if you want to get technical about it. Souls have not pre-existed our bodies that just get dropped into a, a shell when, when a man and a woman have sex. That is not a concept that you find in, Bibli- in the Bible. Now, there is a version of this view that doesn't require that. Fair enough, but the other problems are all going to still apply to that one as well. Here's another problem from a scientific standpoint. No one ever is fully present within the man, ever. After conception, there is a person fully present in the woman. The person is only ever fully present in the woman, so it's not even actually true that we are in Adam. No one has ever been inside a man, only the sperm. And sin nature doesn't apply to genetic traits or anything, it applies to persons, right? So that's not, that just doesn't, it doesn't math. Another problem that leads from this is this concept that sin nature, whatever that is, is therefore, because it's tied to Adam, it's tied to the father, is passed through the sperm, like a sexually transmitted disease, or through the father. And this is why it was so important that Jesus didn't have an earthly father. 
No earthly father, no sin nature. Right? That sounds awesome. You're like, I've had a spiritual epiphany just now. Right? Wow, that's amazing. Here's the problem, though. I'll wait for you to show me the chapter and the verse where this is taught. You're not going to find it. This is a theological or logical leap based on the, the system that's being constructed to explain how we have a connection to Adam. This is not biblical. It's extra biblical. Here's the nail in the coffin, though. And this is where things get really dicey. Did you know Jesus is the son of Adam? Yikes. Right there it is in Luke chapter 3. Luke, in the middle of his narrative, jumps into a genealogy. And just so, starting in verse 23, just so we're clear that we are talking about Jesus, so on and so forth, uh, was, was the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Enos, and he gets tied in verse 38 all the way back to the son of Adam. Now here's the question. You, you, you may say, well, yeah, but he's not really because Joseph wasn't his actual father. Okay, he had a human mother who had human parents, right? Mary was sinful, right? But like, let me ask you this. If we were able to clone a woman and implant that embryo into another woman so that there was never a human father involved at all, would that person be sinless? No. So it doesn't work this way, right? Moreover, Jesus is either fully human or he isn't. And if he's fully human, Romans 5 says, Adam's trespass leads to condemnation, death, for all men. If Jesus is fully human, he should have a sin nature. And appealing to the fact that he's fully God doesn't get you out of the problem. You can't, you're either going to say, well, he is fully human, but he somehow doesn't have a sin nature, even though he's called the son of Adam, which doesn't make sense. Or you're going to say, mm, but he's not really. Okay, then explain to me how the atonement is good. If he's not fully human, if he's not one of us, we've got a problem with the incarnation, right? Thankfully, there's a third option. I hope by now you've seen that where I'm going to land on this. I'm going to propose to you an alternative way of looking at Romans chapter 5. Follow me with this. We've already seen that Adam did not pass on guilt. He passed on death. So here's the, here's the, the deal. Because of Adam... We are all mortal. We're going to die. Why are we going to die? Because in God's presence is the tree of life. As long as we're in God's presence in the garden, Adam and Eve had conditional immortality. As long as they stayed in God's presence and didn't take a header off of a, a cliff, right? Like, they were going to live forever. But Adam high-handedly, willfully sinned against God. He got kicked out of the house. The standard didn't change, though. The standard is righteousness. How are you going to live up to that standard when you're not in God's presence? Right? And we know that mortality is in view here because in Genesis 3 we see this. God says, listen, this has happened. we got to get them out so that they don't live forever. Right? We are now mortal because of what Adam did. And because of our mortality, because we are now born outside the garden, living outside of God's presence, we will inevitably, invariably sin. It may surprise you that in Job chapter 15, you get some of this language that 
Uh, this is Eliphaz, one of Job's friends, and he says something similar in Job chapter 4 about the angels. But he says, what is man that can be pure, or he who is born of woman that he can be righteous? Now get this. Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. In Job chapter 4, he's, Eliphaz says that God charges his, uh, doesn't trust his angels, and he charges them with error. Why in the world would God not trust his, his creatures, human or spiritual being or otherwise? Because they're not him, right? Outside of God's presence, no one will be perfect. No one. We will all inevitably fail if God doesn't intervene, right? So what this means is that we need exactly one ingredient to rebel. You want to guess what it is? Time. Give us time, and we will sin. We will rebel. We will go our own way. There is none righteous, no, not one, right? But this is an important distinction. This means that when we, when you, when I sin, I, we, you, become guilty. And if that guilt is left unresolved, we're going to die again. We see this in Revelation chapter 20. Everyone, everyone is raised on the last day and the books are opened and we are judged according to what we have done. And if your book, if your name is not written in the book of life, if your guilt is left unresolved, it is not taken care of, you will go into the lake of fire, which is called the second death. So here's the picture. Adam and Eve sin. They inherit death. That's what happens when you're out of the presence of God. You're going to die. And because we go right along with them and give us enough time, and we'll, we will too, so do we. Now, this is where things take a different turn. Because everyone wants to talk about, well, what about babies? And what about children? And what about people who don't know or can't know, right? This age of accountability stuff. With these other views, we want to affirm that babies go to heaven, but we got to do all kinds of hermeneutical backflips and, and spasms to try and make it work, or we have to just appeal to God's character because we can't, we can't find a way to make it work. I would submit to you that there is a way to, to deal with this in, in here. So what about babies? What about toddlers? What about the severely, profoundly uh, mentally handicapped, Right? What about people who really, they will never or don't have the opportunity to ever really get to a cognitive place where they can understand any of this? What happens to them? If we look carefully at the text, I think we'll find an answer. So stay with me on the highlighted portions for just a minute because there's a parallelism going on here in the passage. We're going to look at the first parallel and then the second parallel after that. So we're talking about Adam right now. One trespass, that's Adam, leads to condemnation for all men. The penalty for all men is what? Death, right? And by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now, wait a second. I thought we were all sinners. How's that work? So wait, everybody gets death, but, not, but only the many are made sinners? He's saying that condemnation is for everyone. Who are the many we're talking about? That, that doesn't make any sense. Well, let's ask the question. Who besides Jesus could die but never sin? 
Here's a couple hundred million examples. The curse of Adam is death. They're going to die. But they don't get to a point where they, they sin. They haven't done anything, right? If they haven't done anything, they don't hit a point where they inherit guilt. Now, they still need resurrection, which is also something Jesus took care of. But they don't have guilt to take care of. Now, let's look at the parallel here because Paul is setting up a very interesting parallel here. Now he turns to Jesus, the second Adam. One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Is this universalism? Does everybody go to heaven? No, because again, one man's obedience will lead to the many being made righteous. So the other side of the coin is, well, the second Adam did something that leads to life for all men, but only the many will be made righteous. So what is being said here? I'm going to submit to you that what Paul is saying in Romans 5, 18 and 19 is this. The first Adam made death, specifically the second death, possible for all of us. And given time, left unto ourselves, every single person will get to it. We will all die the second death based on, because of what Adam did. The reality, though, is that only many achieve the second death. Why? Because some of us die before they get a chance to, to, to do it. The contrast is that the second Adam made life possible for all men, right? Theoretically, everyone could be saved because of what Jesus did. But the reality is that only many will actually achieve it and take advantage of it. And we want to interpret the right side that way. That makes good sense to us. If we're going to be fair to the passage, we need to treat both sides equally. I, I would submit to you, this is what Paul is saying in this passage, is that we become guilty when we sin. We don't get Adam's guilt. We get our own. Now, there is a problem with this. And the problem, honestly, if I'm being frank, is that this is not traditional. You go to seminary, you go to Bible college, you, will, you read a theology textbook. You're not going to see this exactly in there. There is some Eastern Orthodox tradition that would affirm parts of this, but they're going to go too far the other way, and they're going to say, therefore, because we don't inherit Adam's guilt, we're all good, not biblical, can't get there, right? Passages like Jeremiah would, would say, nope, <laughs> no one's good. It's, it's an amalgam of different things, right? But I, I really do think, again, if we're going to be as try and just let the text say what it says, this is about as good as I can do without adding some of these other theological systems and things onto it to just make it work. So if this is the case, then we'll ask the question one more time, why do we suffer for Adam's sin? And the answer would be, we don't. We suffer for our own. You and I can get along with rebelling against God just fine on our own. Thank you very much. We do not need Adam for that. And the reason that we suffer is because we have done the same as Adam. Left on to our own, we will willingly, high-handedly rebel against God. We will walk away. We'll tell God to stuff it and we'll go do our own thing. Because we are the same as him. We are fallible, imperfect creatures born outside of the garden. We're going to fail. We're going to fall. Now, that sounds terrible, because it is. Thankfully, and we're going to get to this in, in, in the weeks to come, 
God did make a way out. <laughs> he did make a way out, and Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians 15. That Again, as in Adam, all die. That would be the fate of all of us if nothing intervened or changed. In Christ, all can be made alive, right? Now again, Paul would, would caveat that in Romans 5 saying, only many will get there. But that's not because that's not God's fault. It's not because God didn't make the way. Everyone could, if they wanted, have their guilt taken care of. You can, I can. We just have to trust that it has been. Believe God, like Abraham, and that what he said, he did. He did. Now, a question that can sort of come up from this is, okay, so you're saying that everyone will sin, everyone will do terrible, horrible things, everyone will walk away from God, rebel, and we all deserve to die and to go to hell and to be there forever if we don't have this taken care of? Not everyone is that bad, right? I mean, surely we can all think of bad people, but we can also think of good people. What about them? And I'm speaking specifically of people who aren't believers, who aren't Christians, who do amazing things, who do good things, right? Who help the poor, who help the needy, who serve, who give their lives, who die for others, you know, who push a little kid out of the way of an oncoming train and they take it, right? What about those people? I would submit to you we don't really understand the depth of our sin. And that is what we're going to pick up with next time. In the meantime, we're going to try something a little bit different with this class. We've usually done paper notes, paper things. There's so much to cover. There is not time, even in the five weeks that we've, we've dedicated to this. So for those of you who are willing to do a little pre-work, a little homework, that is available in between weeks. Now, if you've never seen one of these, don't freak out. How many of you, just show of hands, have a smartphone that's less than two, that's less than two years old? Okay, if you do, there's a very, very good chance that you can go into your camera, just your straight camera, point it at that, it's going to grab it, and it's either going to redirect you or it's going to ask you if you want to open a link. If you do that, it's going to take you right to it. We're talking like five to ten minutes worth of reading and interactivity here. Just to set the stage for what we're going to talk about next week, and this is going to, you're going to have these every week. Now, if you don't have a smartphone, if you're, you have a flip phone, like my dad, Thankfully, thankfully, these, ins- these writing utensils called pens and pencils still exist. That URL right there, C-U-T-T dot L-Y forward slash all caps, that's important, P-O-E-2 for week two, session two, will get you there. You can either take a picture of this and just type it out in a web browser later, or you can write it down in your notes, but that will get you there. You can go to this on a phone. You can go to this on a laptop. You can go to it on a desktop. As long as it had an internet connection, it'll work. That's all I have for you this week. I hope you come back next week where we look at the next two questions on our list and we go a little bit further down this rabbit trail. All right. Thanks, everyone.